What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Championship Leadership Podcast. This is your host, Nate Bailey. And uh, before we get into today's episode, today's guest, um, please go check out my website. Go to natebailey.org and uh, check out what we're up to over there. Some of the programs that we have, the free resources uh, that we have for you to step up as a championship leader, lead yourself first before you go out and expect to lead others. Free audiobook on the 100-mile mindset, my journey on running a hundred miles and all of the life's lessons that I um, learned along that path, the failures, the experiences, the people I met and how I'm able to take those and apply them to my life and how you can take them uh, without going to run a hundred miles yourself and, and, and apply them into your life as well. So natebailey.org, check it out. Um, today's guest, Yannison Goldson. He's the director of Ethical Imperatives LLC, works with leaders to create a culture of ethics that builds trust, sparks initiative, and drives productivity. He's out of uh, St. Louis, retired teacher. Uh, he's traveled the world. Uh, he's published many, many articles and uh, and written six different books. And the, and the last or the most recent book that he has is called Grappling with the Gray, an ethical handbook for personal success and business prosperity. Sounds like a very interesting uh, book. And we had a great time, told some great stories, really got an uh, opportunity to get to know Yannison a bit better. So with that, I want to introduce you to Yannison Goldson. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back. Championship Leadership Podcast. And today I'm excited we got Yannison Goldson uh, with us here out of Missouri. Uh, thanks for being here today. I appreciate it. That's my pleasure, Nate. Glad to be with you. Absolutely. So um, I always like to kick off our conversation uh, each episode by asking this question, what's, uh, what's championship leadership mean to you? That's the name of the podcast. So when you hear championship leadership, what, what stands out to you? What comes to mind first, I think, is making everyone a champion. The, the real definition of leadership should be empowering others to fulfill their potential to become their best selves, to make their greatest contribution. 
you know, the I heard once that uh, someone say that the best CEO does nothing. <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> it means that he or she makes sure that every person is in the right place. I and Jim Collins in, in Good to Great says that, that the leader's job is to get all the right people on the bus and make sure they're all in the right seats. Yeah. Right? yeah. And, you know, the, the, the sign of leadership is not somebody who does it all because nobody can do it all. You know, nobody likes to be micromanaged and nobody succeeds as a micromanager. So to be able to bring out, to create the, 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 the best talent, the best energy, the best commitment uh, in a way that makes the team work, that makes every individual feel that he or she is on track to make the greatest possible contribution, to see every member of the team as a member of the team, as a partner mm -hmm. rather than a, than a peon, as an ally rather than an asset. Now, those are the marks of championship leadership. Yeah, absolutely. I 100% uh, resonate and agree with that uh, for sure. I love it. What, uh, if you could tell us a little bit more about yourself. I know you have a, a numerous books, but you have one that uh, just recently uh, you're promoting. Um, it's, this just recently come out. And uh, just give the listeners that, that aren't familiar with you a little bit of your background, the story on how you got to where you are today and what it is that you're up to today. All right. Well, the 60-second thumbnail, uh, I graduated from the University of California with a degree in English and put that degree to good use by going hitchhiking cross-country for <laughs> half a year, uh, across the Atlantic, went backpacking around Europe for half a year until I ended up in land of Israel. And that's where I connected with my, uh, my Jewish roots. I'd grown up with really no knowledge whatsoever of what it meant to be Jewish. And I was really astonished to discover this vibrant culture of deep thoughts, of refined thinking, and of tight-knit and purpose-driven community. And that changed the whole trajectory of my life. I ended up spending nine years in Israel, met my wife there, had our first two children, I received my rabbinic ordination, and then embarked on a 23-year career teaching high school. I wanted to impart to young people the sense of purpose, direction, and, and, the, and the insights of wisdom that I had acquired. And so I taught, uh, taught high school in Budapest, Hungary for a year, in Atlanta, Georgia for two years, and in St. Louis, where I live now for 20 years. And in 2016, I retired from teaching. And that's when I started my business as a professional speaker. Again, I wanted to take that accumulated wisdom of 3,000 years and put it into a presentation that was relevant for professionals uh, in every walk of life. And so when I tried to distill all of the underlying concepts and precepts of Jewish thought into a soundbike, I came up with ethical leadership and intellectual integrity. And I think certainly today when... There's so much perception of, you know, ethics being eroded. We don't trust our leaders. Uh, too many times we don't trust each other. Yeah. Political right. debate seems to be infecting every area of our conversation, of our discussion. And when that gets into a workplace culture, then that's really toxic, really corrosive. And so um, I've been doing keynotes, trainings, 
Um, just starting to get into coaching. Of course, uh, when the whole conference industry shut down last year, uh, took a bit of a hit, and it's mm-hmm. been it's been tricky reappraising. So really, what I've been doing the last year is just putting out content. Uh, I've been posting several videos a week. Uh, try to do an article a week. Uh, doing a lot of uh, interviews. I've been on over a hundred podcasts in the last two years. Yeah, and my my new book is called Grappling with the Gray. And it's a collection of scenarios of ethical dilemmas, although very short. Each chapter is only two, three pages. Mm-hmm. But what I do is I provide the reader with an opportunity to look at a complex question in ethics. And rather than try to simply resolve it, to understand it from both sides. Because there usually are two sides to a story. You know, if things are black and white, you know, we love black and white. We love simplicity. We want to make our whole world binary. But that's just not the world we live in. Most of the decisions we make are in that gray area between what's obviously right and obviously wrong. And the way of succeeding is in those gray areas is to use our gray matter. Yeah. (laughs) And that's to, you you have to see both sides. I can't really understand one side of the issue unless I understand the other. I can't really be confident I'm right unless I understand why you think you're right. And I understand why you think I might be wrong. And if we approach our problems that way, then we're going to have much more success in finding common ground and in resolving so many of these issues that seem intractable because we just keep arguing with each other. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting because, um, you know, oftentimes, like I think basically what you're saying is uh, we don't we don't take time to figure out what's going on for somebody else over on their side. Right. Like what's in a conversation or whatever you might whatever might be going on. It's uh, when you can take try to take somebody else's perspective on it definitely helps in the communication. Sure. And if you're making any kind of decision in, in, in a work context, in a political context, in your family life, anywhere, you know, the more input you can get, the more ideas you can, you can generate, then the more opportunity you have yeah. to look at the problem from different angles and see more of the whole picture. I always like to cite the, the example of the high court of sages 2000 years ago when, when they ruled um, on any issue. The junior member of the court would always speak first. And then they would work their way up until the head of the court spoke last. Mm-hmm. Because if the head of court have the court speaks first, so now it's very intimidating to take a different point of view. Yeah, right, right. But if you have the most junior person speak first, and of course you need a leader who's not going to start nodding or shaking his head because that defeats the whole purpose, yeah. but allow every person to say his her point of view, her point of view, what he or she thinks. And, and that will create all kinds of possibilities that won't exist unless you have that kind of environment that promotes mm-hmm. freedom of thought, freedom of expression, freedom of debate. Yeah. That's the real safe space. Yeah. Right. Not one where I'm afraid of getting my feelings hurt, yeah. but one in which I feel comfortable expressing my point of view. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we could use more of that. That's for sure. So what... Um, who are some championship leaders that uh, that have impacted your your life, your journey? And um, well, on a personal level, um, I worked for a principal for for twenty years here in St. Louis, 
who was really, I think I talk about him in my keynote speech. His approach was to let the teachers do their jobs. Mm-hmm. And, awesome. you know, it sounds simple. I mean, he was a, you know, he was a tough guy. He was, he was a gruff person. He wasn't, he wasn't particularly polished. He wasn't a diplomat that got him trouble with the board. But when it came to his teachers, he was fiercely protective because he knew, you know, you might say, well, the principal's first, first priority should be the students. The principal's first priority is what's best for the students. And what's best for the students is to have teachers who are capable who are confident, you know, we knew he had our backs because, you know, they're always disgruntled parents that come after you. Mm -hmm. You're too hard. You're too tough. You're this, you're that. And sometimes it's legitimate and often it's not. Yeah. And he was there when we needed him. He bent over backwards to help us whenever he could. You know, there were times that it was a small private school and we often had um, financial problems. Mm -hmm. He never took his salary until every member of the staff had gotten paid theirs. Yeah. And, you know, he, he brought out the best in us and the school for a, for a small private school with no academic admission standards whatsoever. Our students' test scores were, they matched those of the most prestigious private schools in the state. And our students got into the best colleges, the best religious seminaries. It was a wonderful place to work. Mm-hmm even though at times we suffer from a lot of community politics, yeah. uh, he did everything he could to shield us from that and to let us do our jobs. That's awesome. I love that. What, uh, what about from your time in Israel? Is there anyone that stands out that really uh, made an impact for you? Uh, that's an interesting question. Um, when, uh, when I got to Israel, I talk about this in my TED talk, I, I um, sort of through a, a series of unlikely events, I, I wandered into a, a religious seminary or rabbinic college without knowing what that was or what I was getting myself into. And, okay. and, I, and I really had no intention of investing myself in, in what they were teaching. But my first day, I was brought into a classroom. And uh, uh, for better or worse, uh, I took a seat in the far back corner of the classroom. The, the whole room filled up around me. The instructor walked in. Everyone stood up and I looked for a way out <laughs> because this instructor was not just a rabbi. He was Hasidic. So with the big black hat and the, the long black coat and the scraggly beard and the side locks and okay. the thick glasses. And I knew what was coming. <laughs> <laughs> you better do what I tell you. You're going to burn in hell for all eternity. <laughs> I can't listen to this. Yeah. I had to get out of here, but I couldn't. I was trapped because the room was so packed with people. I would have had to climb over a dozen people to get out. So I sat back. I figured I could survive anything for an hour. And then he starts to talk. And he, and he sounds like a college professor, which I later found out he was. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, he just, he was so articulate and so eloquent and so rational. And so knowledgeable, I just couldn't reconcile the appearance of someone who looked like an anachronism from you know, 19th century Europe with someone who sounded the way he did. Mm-hmm. And that forced me to reevaluate my stereotypes. Yeah, right. And so when I talk now about intellectual integrity, that's what I mean. 
that you know, we make snap judgments based on how people look, based on how they're dressed, based upon their position, their job title, the color of their skin, the gender, all of these biases, conscious or unconscious, or just the first thing out of their mouths. I mean, I've, I've had, um, I wrote an article once and somebody responded attacking me. And, and I, the article didn't make any, the, the comment didn't make any sense based on the article. So uh-huh. I, I said, did you happen to read this paragraph, which says the same thing you are? Yeah. Same thing you're saying. And I sent it back to him. And I got a very nice response, very apologetic. He said, you know, from your first sentence, I was sure I knew where you were going mm-hmm. and what your point was going to be. And I didn't take the time to read the rest. And he apologized and, and complimented me on the article. You know, what happens sometimes is we're so embarrassed that we've jumped to the wrong conclusion that we'll double down. Uh, yeah, right. Yeah, double down on it. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, wouldn't you rather discover you're wrong than continue to be wrong? I know I would. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. 100%. Yeah, it's interesting. That's a great story. I appreciate you sharing that. So I got to I gotta hear a little bit more, though. What's uh, how, how do you end up in a... Did you say a seminary school without yeah. even knowing <laughs> what's going on? I got to hear that. Well, you know, I've been traveling for a year and, and living out of a backpack is exhausting. You, yeah. know, you never know. You never know where you're going to end up that night. You're always looking for a place to stay, what to eat, where to eat, where to go, what to do, who are you going to meet? You're, you're always sort of your antenna up because you've got to, you know, you want to meet new people, but you always want to watch out for people who might want to take advantage of you. Mm-hmm. It's draining. Yeah. I mean, it was a lot of fun. It was educational. It was interesting, yeah. but it was tiring. And, um, you know, I reached a point, I, I still remember, I was standing on a street corner in Vienna, and I couldn't make up my mind whether to go right or left. <laughs> it didn't matter because I was just walking around the city. Yeah. I was just, you know, looking at stuff. And I sat, I stood there on that street corner, I don't know how long, five minutes, maybe longer. And I realized this is ridiculous. I'm, mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm not even functioning anymore. <laughs> yeah. So when it started getting cold in Israel, uh, sorry, it's sort of cold in Europe, I, I headed south and I wanted to go through Israel. I was on my way to Kenya and Botswana and Asia and Australia. I wanted to see the world. And I thought, well, you know, in Israel, you can, you can volunteer on a kibbutz. It's a collective farm. You pick oranges or grapefruits and and, uh, you know, you don't have to pay anything. You're doing the work for free. They're giving you room and board. You're having an experience. Mm-hmm. And I thought just having a routine and some constancy for a couple of months, recharge my emotional batteries, and then I can head off to Africa. Well, that year, the American dollar was at an all-time high. And there were eight or nine million Americans in Europe. And when it got cold, they all the same idea I did. Heads <laughs> out. Yeah. And so in the, for the first time in anyone's memory, you could not find a place on a kibbutz. They were filled up. And, you know, <laughs> well, now what? Yeah. I, I don't have the money to just hang out. And the whole point was to have some routine to help me reset my, 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 myself emotionally and psychologically. And what am I going to do? Well, I heard once about this idea, it's called, in Hebrew, it's called a yeshiva. It's a, it's a, a seminary, a place of religious study. And, you know, I always wanted to learn a little bit more about my Judaism. 
I had grown up in a completely secular household. So I thought, well, maybe if I can find one of these places, give me something to do mm-hmm. for a couple of months. And so I remember I'd met this guy once and, and, I, and I went and I actually found him and he brought me in. And, you know, I just thought it was going to be kind of an interesting um, way of learning some information. Yeah. Uh, I really wasn't prepared for the culture of the place. Yeah. But I also wasn't prepared for how compelling the ideas were. Mm-hmm. Because while I was traveling the world, I imagined myself as a, I was on a, I was on, I was searching for truth. You know, this is part of why I studied literature and philosophy in college. Yeah. I wanted to understand the world better. I wanted to understand my, myself better. Uh, and of course, traveling, being a, a seeker of truth, that's very fashionable. It's very, very romantic. But of course, a seeker of truth, you're not supposed to find truth. Right? Seeking for truth, that's cool. Finding truth, that's arrogant. <laughs> you know, who do you think you are? Yeah. <laughs> what makes you think you've got the truth? Yeah. <laughs> And so when I found that, you know, I had all these questions, but they had good answers <laughs> yeah. and I had objections. I had challenges. They responded to everything yeah, in a way that really made sense. And after a while, I just started running out of excuses. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if I'm really seeking truth, am I just going to walk away from this because yeah. I don't like the way it makes me feel? Or am I going to incorporate it in my life? And of course, you know, when it comes down to business, family decisions, political decisions. It's the same thing. Do we want to be right? Do we want what's comfortable? Or do we want the best possible decisions that are going to improve all of our quality of life? Yeah, right. Yeah, that's incredible. So how long did you end up staying uh, there? How long did it take you to, to, I assume you went through and completed your time in school there? Uh, yeah, I went through a pretty, I call, it, I call it agonizing reappraisal. It was, a, <laughs> you know, I mean, here I was, I'd been, I'd been to college, I'd been around the world. I'd, uh, you know, I thought I had life all figured out. I was 24 yeah. years old, you know. And uh, now I'm finding out, you know, you don't, you're not even at square one yet. <laughs> yeah, right. right. Start learning a whole new language, a whole new way of life, a whole new way of thinking. And all that information and wisdom you think you've accumulated, set it aside. <laughs> Mm-hmm. It's not going to get you too far here. You yeah. know, eventually I reintegrated the things I'd learned, but, um, you know, it was tough. So in that particular place, I, I stayed for about six months. Okay. Uh, I then moved to a different institution and stayed there for five years. Okay. And then, uh, then a couple of more over that, but it was, it was almost nine years in Israel. Yeah. That's a great story. I love it. And, um, let's shift gears a little bit so still on the kind of championship leadership topic and and uh you know championship leaders have great vision so i always love to hear from my guests what your vision is so i know you've retired from teaching and and now you're into the speaking and speaking like you said took a hit with with uh 2020 and the covid um pandemic that's been going on and events being kind of shut down and speaking world being turned upside down, but making some shifts and and putting out some content. What's uh, short term, what kind of impact do you want to make? What's the vision for you and inside of your professional life and what you want to do? You know, I've been driven 
by the universal principles uh, of my faith and and, and uh, my heritage. And you know, there's there's a there's a principle. Uh, the Hebrew term is derech eretz. It translates as the way of the land. And what it really refers to is good character and good relationships. Because character really is the bedrock on which relationships are built. You know, you don't want to be friends or partners with somebody that you can't trust. Mm -hmm. And of course, uh, Jim Rohn says, you're the average of the five people you spend the most time with. And that doesn't just mean our immediate circle of friends. It means the, the information we consume online. You know, if I'm listening to experts that just want to tear down the other side, well, we've already talked about I'm not allowing myself to hear both sides of the issue, so I'm lacking intellectual integrity there. But what's more is I'm going to absorb those qualities, those characteristics. I'm going to become, become combative in my interactions. I'm not going to be willing to listen to people who differ from me or show respect for them or their ideas. And you're not going to have a healthy society that way. I mean, we're all complaining. We're all complaining about how broken our society is. Yeah. I think, I think uh, something like, I forget the exact, something like 80% of employees say they don't trust their bosses. That's incredible. Wow. Congress has an approval rating of what, 11%, I think? Yeah. You know, the last two elections have been between candidates that nobody likes. Mm-hmm. And nothing seems to be getting better. So it's this bizarre situation we're in where we all see the problem. We all want it to be better. And yet we don't know what to do. And it just keeps getting worse. And I think the answer really is, you know, there used to be a, an expression. I don't think it's true any longer, but it used to be the all politics is local. Because what impacts us personally is what's most important to us. Let's take that principle and apply it to our personal lives and to our business lives. I think business is one place where we can actually make things better because there's one thing we all agree on, we want to make more money. And there are more and more statistics all the time about a culture, a business culture of trust and ethics is more profitable. It grows faster. Employees are more engaged. They're happier at work. They're more aligned with the company's purpose. They're less likely to go looking for other jobs. The data is all there. And it comes from showing respect for people, letting people make their best contribution. And it's okay if we disagree openly. The phrase I was introduced to recently called constructive disagreement. And it's just what it sounds like. Mm-hmm. You know, it's someone said it's, the French philosopher says, it's better to debate an issue without resolving it than to resolve it without debating it. Yeah, 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 yeah absolutely. Because, you, you know, you, you, you want to examine every possibility so you can make the best possible choices. So this is really my mission is that by helping leaders recognize how to create a culture of trust that builds a culture of ethics, that builds trust, that sparks initiative, that drives productivity, that 
by changing the business culture, we'll all do better, but then maybe that will start seeping out into the wider community and help us correct so many of these political problems that we have as well. Yeah, right. Yeah, the uh, the art of uh, debate or it, it doesn't, yeah, today's society doesn't, doesn't seem like um, you can't disagree anymore, right? It's either I'm right and you're wrong or vice versa. And, uh, unfortunately, uh, I don't know if it's because of social media or, or what, we've, we've lost a lot of that. Well, that makes it worse because people sort of hide behind their anonymity online. Yeah, right. You're, you tend to be a little more circumspect when you're some with somebody in the flesh. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, totally. What uh, I know um, we got a hard stop here in a few minutes, so I want to just uh, wrap this up. If there were one or two things that if you were to give the listeners today and they were to implement right away, it would help move their life forward today. What would that be? Look to engage people you don't agree, you don't agree with. Mm. Mm -hmm. They say that's actually one of the best ways, as some of us are getting older, um, to uh, to slow down the advance of mental decline, dementia, Alzheimer's, those types of things. Um, Besides doing crossword puzzles and uh, learning a new foreign language, talk to people you disagree with. But when you talk to them, listen to understand. Yeah, yeah. As Stephen Covey says, we don't listen to understand. We listen to respond. Yeah, right. Right. Listen, understand. And then before you articulate your point of view, say back over, paraphrase what they've said to you. And this accomplishes two things. One, it helps us understand their position better, but it also shows them that we've made the effort to understand their position better. That develops trust. And then we can articulate our own point of view. Yeah. And you know what? Sometimes we'll discover maybe there's some legitimacy on the other yeah, side. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Be open. I love that. Yeah. Thank you for that. That's, that's uh, very important. And uh, especially nowadays, always, but today more than ever, probably. So what are a few ways we can find out more about you, your book and everything that you're up to for the listeners that want to um, dig a little deeper into, into you? Well, so everything, uh, all my stuff is available uh, on my website, which is my name. Yonason Golton, Y-O-N-A-S-O-N-G-O-L-D-S-O-N.com. Very active on LinkedIn. So encourage listeners to connect with me there. And I'm always happy to continue the conversation. Great. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for being here uh, today and taking the time. I uh, really do appreciate it. And uh, have a great day. My pleasure, Nate. Thanks. In 05 and 06, I deployed to Kuwait. I used to wait every day for them to say, Nature going home. I miss my life, miss my wife. For 15 months, she was all alone. But when I got back, I felt out of control. Feeling entitled, I put my life on hold. I keep on drinking, so I'm sinking in a river of liquor. Me and my wife weren't all right. I didn't reconnect with it. I had a business, insurance agent, and rental properties. But is there something bigger than this? I know there's gotta be, so I invested in myself. I started seeing coaches. Life is a camera. I fixed the lens, and now I see in focus. Now my life's unrecognizable from my life just a couple years ago. 17 plus years. A marriage has never been better than this And we got three kids, that's who I do it for I'm gonna be a leader I'ma lead the way, cause I'm a firm believer We can do anything we want If I said it, then I meant it I probably already did it Consider it done Consider it done If you need some inspiration, you should play this Championship leadership, bro
Podcast. Hey, baby.